Well, it's great to uh, see all of y'all today. If you're a guest, my name's David. I'm the pastor of the church. I want you to know you're always welcome to anything we have going on here. I hope you feel that you're welcome. We've had a great summer. It's kind of come to an end now. Uh, we had children's camp last week. What a great week. Some of your kids are amazing. Some of your kids are horrible. But I'm telling you, man, <laughs> I'll tell you, I, it was a great week. You know, all your kids are, 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 are good. Yeah, that's good. So uh, we're, we're in this series that's lasting from the 1st of June through the end of July. It's entitled, It Begins. And uh, really what the series is about, we look at the first two chapters of Acts, and we're looking at the beginning of the Christian movement. And uh, what I've shared with you throughout the series, what I really want this series to drive home, it's really a simple concept, but it's this, that no story matters more than the story of Jesus. I mean, I, mean, I say this every week, because this is the theme of this, this whole series. The story of Jesus, the gospel, you know, Jesus matters more than anything else. I mean, at some point, that has to be so deep in your thought process and in your soul and in everything about you that you understand nothing is more important than Jesus. Now, today's message is a continuation of looking at the sermon Peter was preaching. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 36. And, and what I want in this message, what I want you to get from this message today, and it's also a very simple thought concept, and it's this, that the story of Jesus is a true story that reveals that Jesus is Lord. I mean, to the end of all this, we need to understand that the story of Jesus boils down to the fact that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of everything. And so as we go through this message today, I'm going to break it down. Um, we're going to look at the context, the message, and the significance. So I'm going to begin looking at the context. Now, context matters. Early on, as, a, as when I, back when I was a preacher boy, when I was, you know, I started when I was 19, when I was young, I learned an important, the simple, simple thing that I was taught but it's always stuck with me, and it's true, that context is everything. And, and, and when you come to the, the Bible, when you come to the Old and New Testament, the context means everything. There's the context at large, there's the context of the entire Bible, the context of the book, context of the passage. You know, what happens when, when people get false teachings, when people start mixing and matching Scripture, they pull it out of context, and they lose its meaning. Many of the things that some of you struggle with is because you've been taught things out of the context in which they have. So we, we need to realize this. Now, this passage, I'm going to tell you that the, the verses in today are really heavy doctrinally, theologically. And, and so, like, this message is basically, it's not like Theology 101 or 201, it's like 301. And I'm going to, I'm going to simplify this. And, and when I come to these complex passages, what I'm about to say, for many of you, is going to be really shocking. Maybe, and maybe of all the things that I've ever shared with you, the one you're going to find the most difficult to believe. But I am not very smart, all right? And it's not. And all the staff guys are saying, yeah, we know that's true. And uh, so I've really got to break these things down so I can grasp them. And so that's really what I want to do. And so let me just talk a little bit about this context. I want you to remember where we are in Acts chapter 2. It's the celebration of Pentecost. Pentecost for the Jews was the Feast of Tabernacles, a harvest celebration. <clears throat> it occurred 50 days after Passover. Now, as I shared with you already many times, um, people came to Passover and they stayed to Pentecost. In fact, it was expected of every Jew, every Jewish man to come and bring his family to celebrate Passover. Now, more Jews lived outside of the Holy Land of Palestine they lived, than they lived in it. In fact, there are more Jews in Egypt probably than in Palestine. And, and so they, they would come and they would, they would stay, you know, like two months long. And so all this time was there. Now, as we have saw, uh, you know, beginning in this whole series, 
on the day of Pentecost, the, the 120 believers are there. There are 120 people who mostly come from the area of Galilee, north part of that. Jesus had appeared to many of them because we know that Paul teaches us that he appeared to 500 people at one time. We believe in Galilee. They were down for Passover. They were down, you know, Pentecost. They had stayed through all the things with the resurrection of Jesus. And so these people were there. And they were in, in a room together, and the Holy Spirit came. And we saw when the Holy Spirit came, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They got the power and the presence of the Spirit. They pour out into the streets. And these 120 believers, led by the apostles, began preaching, began speaking in languages they couldn't speak before. It's a miracle. And they began to speak in the languages of the masses of people were there. And, and they began to share the story of Jesus. And as the masses filled into the streets, heading to the temple, so that they could celebrate Pentecost, all these thousands of people began hearing the story of Jesus in their language. And it was confusing, and it was chaotic, and it was magnificent all at the same time. And Peter, realizing this, on the steps of one of the porches there at the temple, began to share the message of Jesus. And one of the things that we saw two weeks ago is that when he began to share this message, he said, listen, what you're experiencing is the fulfillment of what happened in the book of Joel. Joel chapter 2, we understand. And they didn't divide it into chapters, but that's what it was. And, and, and he says, when it said that in the last days... That I will pour out my spirit on you. In the last days meant to come into the Messiah. They said, what you're experiencing with the pouring out of the spirit, and you hear the story of Jesus in your own language, is signified that the Messiah has come. Now, they thought the Messiah was going to come and reestablish the nation of Israel, defeat the Romans, reestablish the Jewish nation forever and ever and ever. So what he's got to do is share with them who this Messiah is and what the Messiah is really all about. Now, they all understood, and all the Jews would understand, that Messiah was going to come from David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is made a promise by the prophet Nathan. God makes the promise through the prophet Nathan. He says, you will always have a descendant rule over my people. Now, we know that he didn't always have someone who came from his bloodline be the king of either Israel or Judah. In fact, for most of Israel's history, the last 600 years, they had no king. No real king that straight back to David. And so you see that. Now, the interesting thing is that for over 400 years, there was somebody from David's family, king either over Israel or Judah. Think back 400 years from today. 400 years from now is 1623. Like when like 1620, the pilgrims came. I mean, that's, that's 400 years ago. I mean, America hadn't even been anything for over 400, for 400 plus years. That's how long David did have someone reign. But when he ceased to have someone reign, how was this going to be fulfilled? Well, the Jews began to understand and develop the idea from passages in the Old Testament, what they called the scriptures, because it was their scripture, that a Messiah would come. And so they began to look for a Messiah, and they began to understand certain parts of their scripture, what we call the Old Testament, as pertaining to the Messiah. So what Peter does is he picks up on three of the different Psalms, Psalms 132, Psalm uh, 16, and Psalm 110. And he shows how these Psalms, which dealt with the Messiah, pointed to Jesus. Now, it's always interesting that when David, there's a lot of debate, not that it really matters, but there's a little bit of debate that when these guys in the Old Testament times, you know, when they said things, when they wrote things down, that eventually was fulfilled in Jesus, did they understand that what they were writing or saying was going to be fulfilled at a later time? We really don't know. Some think that in Peter's message that he is alluding to the fact that David understood there was a Messiah who was going to come and fulfill what he wrote. The problem is <coughs> the concept of a Messiah developed later. I mean, when David was king, Israel was the most powerful nation in all the world. 
they didn't need anybody to rescue them. They were already that great nation. They were already that great people. So it's not likely that David could think about someone coming, you know, whenever to be that savior, that Messiah to rescue them. What he probably understood and what he probably was doing in these psalms was these were psalms written from his heart to make an appeal to God for his benefit or the benefit of one of his descendants. Either way, it really doesn't matter. What Peter shows is this is what happened. And so Peter preaches this amazing message. We call it, I told you last week, it's the apostolic message. And in this message, he tells them that Jesus died, was crucified for their sins, and was raised back to life. In fact, what I shared with you last week was at the cross, at the cross, Jesus died in our place and on our behalf. And at the resurrection, he defeated the power of sin, death, and hell. This becomes the apostolic message. This is what he begins to preach to them. And in preaching this message to them, he begins to formulate what would then begin to be, for over 2,000 years, the fundamental message of the church. This is the beginning of the Christian movement, right? That's what I've been sharing with you. And at the beginning of the Christian movement, we see the beginning of the message. And what he's going to deal with in this message is two things. He's already, we saw last week, dealt with the crucifixion, the resurrection. He's going to continue to deal with the resurrection. And then he's also going to bring in something else called the exaltation. The word exalted means to be lifted up on high. Jews looked at God as being exalted, to be worshipped and praised. We sing songs about that. Um, in Isaiah chapter 6, he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The exaltation of Jesus is to put him at the right hand of God, the position of glory. And we understand that there's one God, three persons, the Trinity. Here the Son is going to be in the position of the glory that is always his to be worshipped. This is one of the themes being taught by Peter. He's going to bring all this together and show them how Jesus fulfills all of this. And here's what we need to see. And this is why this is so important that you get this. And I want to share this context. And it's for this reason. The credibility of the apostles, the credibility of their message is tied to their relationship with Jesus their understanding of scripture, and the reliability of their message. What is going to come from Peter's message for all these 2,000 years, because we still proclaim the apostolic message, is based on their relationship with Jesus, because they had one with him. Their understanding of the scriptures and how they applied it to Jesus, and was their message credible? Was it real? Was it authentic? So now we come from the context, which I want to share with you, to the message. And so we, we come to this message, and we're continuing. He, you know, he, last week we saw him say, you crucified him, God raised him from the dead. Verses 25, 26, you know, 27, 28, he refers to Psalm 16. I, I kind of skipped that part to cover the other because he's going to refer to Psalm 16 again. And I said I'd explain what that means, which is what I kind of just did in the context. So here's what he says in verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently or boldly, say to you regarding the patriarch David. Now, he calls David a patriarch. We don't normally think of David as a patriarch. Normally, the patriarchs are those guys found in Genesis, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all those guys. But by the time of the first century, it appears that the Jews considered people like Moses and David to be patriarch, to be founders, you know, of their faith. That he both died and was buried, and his tomb was with us today. So he's setting this up because he's going to talk about resurrection and exaltation. He says, but David, we all know King David. He died and was buried. You know, they all know that. In fact, he's saying his tomb is close by. They, either, either his body was still there or they had moved it somewhere else, but they knew where it was buried. 
Now, this is in contrast to Jesus, by the way, who is going to be the descendant of David, who is the Messiah. His body, I mean, he was died, but he was buried, but he ain't in the tomb anymore. I mean, it's hard to know how much at this time gossip was going around about Jesus. But if one thing was going to be shared about Jesus, you know, 50 days later, you know, after the, the cross event and the resurrection, it'd be that the tomb was empty. So everybody there, if they knew anything about Jesus, knew well, wherever he was supposed to be buried, he wasn't there. So contrast David, whose body is in a tomb, we know where it is, and Jesus, whose body isn't in a tomb, and we know that that tomb is empty. Verse 30, and so, because he was a prophet, we don't often think of David as a prophet. Understand the word prophet, by the way. Our, our culture today has so messed this up. There's so much movement within Christianity that purely makes the idea of a prophet someone who speaks to the future. That is not the fundamental meaning. The word prophet is someone who speaks to the mind of God. What I am doing when I preach is fulfilling the New Testament understanding of a prophet, someone who speaks the message of God. And even in the Old Testament, that's fundamentally what they did. Now, there was oftentimes a future element because what God was going to do oftentimes depended on what they did. So if you continue to live in rebellion against God, God will remove the kingdom from you. So, it, yeah, it's future, but the fundamental focus is on the message of God. So David was one who spoke the message of God, that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne. Now, this particular verse is quoting or alluding to Psalm 132. In 2 Samuel 7, I think I'd already mentioned it earlier, Samuel was told, I mean, uh, Nathan told David that you will have someone who will reign forever, one of your descendants. Well, this, this is the psalm that David is writing about that is in this psalm. Well, obviously, we know that God gave this oath to him that someone would reign and rule. David is dead. It's not him. There hasn't been a descendant of David reign for 600 years. So how is this going to be fulfilled? But they all believed that it would be fulfilled with someone who would come from the family of David, that someone was going to come and do this. So verse 31 says then, he looked ahead, and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. David was looking ahead, he said, whether he knew it or not, and he was speaking of the Christ, the Messiah, the resurrection. And now you're coming back in this verse to Psalm 16. On the screen, it's all in the same font. A lot of you, if you're reading following along in your Bible, you may notice different font sizes for when they're quoting the Old Testament. Or they, I mean, maybe it's in italics, or maybe it's in parentheses, or the font changes. So this would be one of those times. So he's quoting Psalm 16, which I made reference to last week. It is a psalm that deals with death and the desire of the psalmist to not experience death forever, to be with God. And so he says, he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Of the Christ, he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Now, obviously this doesn't apply to David. Hades was the place of the dead. If you're familiar with Greek mythology, you're familiar with the concept of Hades. In the Old Testament times, in, in Hebrew, it's called Sheol. Almost all ancient cultures believe that everybody went to the same place, the place of the dead. You could be rewarded there, you could be punished there, but that is where you went, the place of death, where death reigns. So the Christ is not in the place of death. The concept of heaven and hell wasn't in the Old Testament, but the New Testament is there. They would think in terms of heaven and hell, but that's not what Peter's alluding to. He's alluding to the power of death. His body is not into death, nor does it decay, rot, you know, does, does, does the flesh begin to melt away. 
I said, that is not, you can't say that of David. It happened to David. But it's not going to happen to the Christ, who, by the way, we know is Jesus. Because we saw Jesus come back to life. And that's what he says in verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up again, which we were all witnesses. Jesus died. He was crucified. He was buried. But his tomb is empty. Why is his tomb empty? Did they move the body? No. Did the disciples steal the body? No. I've explained that, I think, last week or two weeks ago. Well, that couldn't have happened. No. It's because he came back to life. He was raised back to life. And he says, we're, we're witnesses of that. Not just Peter. Not just the 12, but actually the whole 120. Remember, I shared with you earlier that Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. Those 120 people that were there, probably most of them had all seen the resurrected Jesus. They sent him back to life. That's why they believed. That's what they were sharing. So he's saying, Jesus, this guy fulfills all of that in Psalm 16. That there a resurrection would occur. That there would not be the suffering in Hades. There would not be the decay of the flesh. It didn't apply to David. It didn't apply to the kings after him. Who did it apply to? Well, Jesus. How do we know it applied to Jesus? Well, we saw him. And after we saw him resurrection, you know, he was ascended. We come to verse 33, and here's what he says, and this is so cool. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, this is Jesus. He was exalted. I told you he's going to speak about exaltation. He was raised up to the right hand of God, the place of honor. This is not necessarily a physical location, but it, it is, in essence, a place where one belongs. I think we sang a song earlier uh, where we talked about, you know, praising, you know, the exalted Jesus. I know sometimes I get the music from this service in the early service, 8.30, confused. By the time I do four services, I can't remember what I said, when, where, how. I sometimes, I'm in the fourth service, I either say the same thing or I say, the service sometimes gets short because I leave stuff out because I thought I already said it, and I did three other times, you know. But we sing about, we sing, I don't even remember what I was talking about, we sing about the exalted Jesus, that he's worthy of honor and praise and glory. That's what that means. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus told them that when I leave, I'll send you the Holy Spirit, that he will have the authority to send that Holy Spirit. So get this, he has poured forth this which you both see in here. So understand what he's saying. He's saying, when y'all walked out onto the streets, you masses of people, and you saw us, and you know, saw the 120 of us, and we were sharing the gospel in languages we didn't understand, but you did. This was the pouring out of the Spirit. He said that at the very beginning of his message. He said that was from Joel. He said, so I'm, this what was from Joel, what I told you was a pouring out of the Spirit applies to Jesus. This is what I'm telling you happened, that he was exalted. He was lifted up to the right hand of God. How do we know this? Because you witnessed it. Just as we witnessed the resurrected Jesus, you witnessing the pouring out of the Spirit upon these people, which allows you to hear the message of the gospel in your own language, is the evidence that not only has the Spirit come, but in fulfillment, and we'll see in just a minute, of the Scriptures, Jesus has been lifted up and exalted. There's the connection. The exaltation permits and allows the pouring out of the Spirit which you have seen. Here's what this means. The people in the crowd were the ones who authenticated the exaltation of Jesus and his sending of the Spirit. They're the ones who made it authentic because they heard the gospel in their own language. And that's what he's saying to them. 
So verse 34, he's going to quote Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is clearly a passage that they all believe applied to the Messiah. Jesus uses it about himself in Mark chapter 12, verses 35. It's probably quoted about a dozen or more times or alluded to. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he said himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sit here, have the place of honor, until I make the enemies bow before you. Until the time has come for the second coming. That's what Psalm, they all believe Psalm 10. They all believed when Psalm 10 pointed to the Messiah being exalted to a place of honor as he reigned forever. He said that he is. Jesus is that guy. How do we know? Because you received the pouring of the Holy Spirit. Then he concludes his sermon this way. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, whom you crucified. Get this. The one you crucified, Jesus, know without a doubt, because he fulfills all of this scripture that we talked about. He fulfilled all the promises made to David and made by David, because he brings that about, and I'm a witness and you're a witness. He is not only the Christ and Messiah, he is the Lord. And by being the Lord, he's all that that means, that he is God, the one to be worshipped. And here's what happens. And this becomes an important thing from this moment on. From this moment on till today, the apostolic message is Jesus is Lord. It's what we proclaim. Many times when people are baptized, and many groups and many and Christian groups and faith practices, well, when they baptize, they'll say, do you confess that Jesus is Lord? And they will say, Jesus is Lord. When we baptize him, we baptize him because Jesus is Lord. It becomes the message. It becomes what they share. So here's the apostolic message. That Jesus died in your place and on your behalf. God raised him back to life and he is exalted. And all of that is summed up in one phrase. He's Lord. Jesus is Lord. And because of that, we have to, as we'll see next week, renounce our sin and trust him with our life. So from the message... We come then to the significance of this message. A uh, movie came out July 4th. I went and saw it. Some of you did too. Uh, you probably have seen it called Sound of Freedom. It's a great movie. Um, it's a movie that deals with an with a unbelievable subject matter. It's tough. It's human trafficking, specifically uh, the trafficking of children. And, um, you know, for some reason this is controversial. I have no idea why it's controversial. Maybe because the film was made by a faith-based organization, even though it's not really a faith film. It's not about faith in Christ. But... It's certainly a powerful, powerful message. And the interesting thing is the week it came out, another movie came out, the new Indiana Jones movie came out, and Sound of Freedom was the number one at the box office over an Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, I saw the Indiana Jones movie uh, the other day. It's a good movie. I mean, I, I love the Indiana Jones movie. I like the first one. Raiders of the Lost Ark, that's a great movie. That came out 40 years ago. I was just a kid. I was like five when it came out 40 years ago, something like that. <laughs> And it's one of my all-time ten favorite. Anytime it's on, I watch it, man. I love that movie. The other two, the second, third were pretty good. Now the fourth one, God, so bad. The fifth one is better than the fourth. Now I'm just giving you a, music, a movie review, so I'm saying. But listen, let's be honest. Harrison Ford's like old, old, old. Older than probably anybody in here, but maybe eight or nine of y'all. I won't point you out or look at you. It just doesn't make sense. But here's, that's, not the, that's not the point of all this. Sound of Freedom is a movie that tells a true story. 
It tells the story of a guy named Tim Bullard. Now, it's, it's a couple of hours, a little over a couple of hours long. So, yeah, they condense things. Yeah, they, they compact things, just like this message. The message, you can read this message to Peter in minutes. You think Peter only preached five minutes? Oh, come on. Peter probably preached for, forever. It's probably like, Peter, it's lunchtime, and we got to go, man. This is the first message ever. He's giving him everything he's got. But Luke has to condense it down. And so that's what we see. So I tell you that because there's sometimes movies are called a true story. This is a true story. Sometimes you'll see a movie and it'll say it's, it's inspired by a true story or it's inspired by true events, which means something happened, inspired them, and they put a movie together. But the movie isn't telling that story. And the movie is just kind of made up, fictitious people, all of that. When you come to the story of Jesus that Peter's preaching, he's saying this is the true story. It isn't inspired by events. It's not inspired by a true story. No, it is the true story. It's the true story of Jesus. And we need to understand and recognize that. In fact, the story of Jesus is authentic. It actually happened. It is based on facts. It happened. It is based on truth. And you have 120 people who bear witness to the resurrected Jesus. And then, oh, by the way, Peter says, and there are thousands of you who bear witness to the exaltation of Jesus because you've seen the point out of the Spirit. He didn't make this up. He's telling the real story. Think about what's going on in their lives. Two months earlier, they had walked, they came into the holy city the week before Passover, the Sunday before the resurrection, and the people were crowning Jesus the Messiah. They were thinking, yeah, Peter and the guys, we got the Messiah. We're going we're gonna to kick the Romans out. Everything's going to be so great. And then over the next few days, what happens? He gets them together on the night of Passover, and he says, guys, I'm leaving you. I'm gone. I'm going to be crucified and killed. I'll come back to life, and I'm leaving. I'll leave the Holy Spirit. They're going, what? I mean, and then it happens. They, he gets betrayed. There's a trial. Peter denies He's buried, and there's an empty tomb, and they go to the empty tomb, and he's not there. You know, and then all of a sudden, he makes appearances, and he's teaching them. <clears throat> and then he ascends into heaven, and then after he ascends into heaven, 10 days later, the Holy Spirit comes, places rocking and rolling with power and presence. I mean, and, and, and this is just crazy. He didn't make this up. Who's going to make that up? He's saying that this, this is all true. And here's what happens. Peter's message in Acts 2 sets the tone for the entire Christian movement. And Peter makes it clear that the story of Jesus is true and what he can do in your life is real. It doesn't matter if you think it's true. It is true. And what he can do in your life is real. It's the real thing. He can change your life. They experienced, those people, those masses experienced how real Jesus really is when the Holy Spirit was poured out and they heard the story of Jesus in their language. And so what happens, and this, this is so important to us today, is that Peter moves the story of Jesus to an undeniable fact that Jesus is Lord. And this becomes the central confession of Christianity. The confession of our faith is Jesus is Lord. Paul says, Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart, God raising from the dead, you'll be saved because with your heart you believe and you are justified. And with your mouth you confess and are saved. And they begin from this point on calling him Jesus Lord, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. They begin to teach and share and talk about him being Lord. And here's the cool thing. Jesus is Lord whether you believe it or not. Sometimes I hear people say, oh, you need to, you need to, Make Jesus the Lord of your life. Are you kidding me? You don't make Jesus the Lord of your life. He already is the Lord of your life. He's the Lord of every life. You acknowledge that he is Lord. 
You confess that he is Lord. You trust that he is Lord. You repent of your sin and honor him and ask him to save you and be the Lord of your life. But he is already Lord. And Paul says in Philippians, there's going to come a day where every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's kind of like that old, old, old oil filter commercial. It says, you can pay me now or pay me later. You either confess Jesus in this life or you confess him in the next life. But you better do it in this life because it won't matter in the next. It'll be too late. Because he is Lord. And every one of us will recognize it. Which brings down to one simple question. Have you confessed Jesus is Lord? Have you trusted him with your life? Have you done that in your life? As I began the message today, I share with you that the story of Jesus is true, and it reveals that Jesus is Lord. He's the true. He's truly Lord. Whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you believe it or not, it's irrelevant except in your life. Oh, it's relevant in your life. Because to deny that he is Lord, to not confess that he is Lord, to not trust him as Lord, is to live continually in rebellion against him and to reject the very reason he came. It is to reject his death. It is to reject his resurrection. It is to reject his exaltation. And it is to say, in essence, I don't need Jesus. I will do it myself and you will fail. But to confess he is Lord is to confess your sin, to believe in the resurrected Christ, the exalted Christ, and to give your life to him. So have you done that? And if not, why? What world are you waiting for? What more do you want? Here is this apostolic, I mean, it's this message that comes to this day. He died for you and God raised you back to life. He's exalted now. Here's the evidence. Paul, Peter says, here's the evidence. It's all true. So why don't you trust Jesus to be the Lord of your life? And those of you that are Christians, do you live like he's Lord? I mean, do you live your life every day like Jesus is really the Lord? Or do people look at your life and have no idea that you could be a follower of Christ? In just a moment, I'll be here. A few others will be here. We're standing. If you want to come and say, you know, I need, I need to get my life to Jesus. I really need to trust Jesus to be the Lord of my life. You can come and, and you can do that. If you want to pray with us about something, maybe a burden on your heart, we'll do that. If you want to join our church, you can. So I don't know what it is you, know, you probably need to do, and, and that's between you and Jesus, but I know this. When you walk out of this place today and you go about the rest of your life, be sure you walk out of here having confessed that Jesus is Lord. So, Father, as we come before you to honor you, to honor Jesus, to honor, Father, even the Spirit, one God, three persons, all to be recognized as holy. Father, we recognize that Jesus is the exalted one to be lifted up to worship and praised because he and he alone is Lord. And we know he is Lord because of the life of the apostles and the life of the people and the pouring out of the spirit and all the evidence that just points to one simple fact. He's the Lord of all life. So help us to trust him as Lord, to confess our sin, to move away from our sin, to believe and have faith and to give our life to him. For this is what it means to confess he is Lord, to trust him with us, to give him us. Let us do that. Amen. Would you stand?